Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillah. Vessalatu vesselamu ala Resulillah ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve men vela. Umar ibn Abdülaziz is the grandson of Umar ibn Khattab okay, and the grandson also of Marwan ibn al-Hakam. Okay. So let's see how it's worked. What is their relationship like? Let me explain to you and I'll show you right now uh, what this relationship is like. Okay. The relationship between Umar ibn Abdul Aziz and Umar ibn Khattab and Marwan ibn al-Hakam. First of all, Marwan ibn al-Hakam, Umar ibn Abdul Aziz are polar opposites. Umar ibn Abdul Aziz is the paragon of taqwa. Marwan ibn al-Hakam is one of the... He was not... Um, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, he was not a Sahabi. He became Muslim after the passing of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Okay, if I'm not mistaken. But he's not. He is somebody who caused so many problems in the Ummah, and he is the source of the civil war. Like single, if you want to say like single-handedly, who lit the match? You can't have a civil war without the populace of your nation is already has issues. Okay. But someone's got to light the match, right? Marwan ibn al-Hakam lit the match. And he didn't light a match. He torched it. How? He's the one who got very close to Uthman ibn Affan, Sayyidina Uthman. Radiallahu ta'ala. And he's the one who made sure that he was always in Sayyidina Uthman's ear okay, to put his relatives in charge of everything. All right? And when he put his relatives in charge of everything, some of them were totally corrupt. As an example, the ruler of Egypt was absolutely corrupt. Okay? He was absolutely corrupt. So the Egyptians wanted him out. So they came to Sayyidina Uthman, and amongst them was Muhammad the son of Sayyidina Abi Bakr Siddiq. And they said, we want another ruler. They said, who do you want as a ruler? They said, Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr. He said, okay, fine. They said, write it in a letter. He wrote it in a letter. Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr. Put Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr as ruler. Marwan ibn al-Hakim then, before that caravan leave, right after that caravan left, he writes another letter with his own handwriting and he stamps it with the seal of Sayyidina Uthman. What does that stamp say? That letter said, you will get a letter from me saying put Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr in charge, ignore it, and rather when Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr comes, kill him and stay in power. And he sends that out. When they get there, they see the letter, and they get the other letter. And they capture the person, and that states, they look up, that, they look at that letter, and they see the same seal. The seal of Uthman on this letter, the seal of Uthman on that letter. They become enraged in Egypt. And they travel back to Medina, this time sieging, laying siege to Medina, in a sense, not directly, not right away, 
but they came with many people and they they surrounded the house of Uthman and said give us show us talk about this he comes out and he said well this is not my handwriting they ask around he said well I never wrote this letter to kill Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr they ask around and they find this Marwan ibn al-Hakam it's handwriting this is the Marwan we're talking about you got Habib, how, what's our status to see if we can put the graph on the uh, screen or not? Can we do it? Yeah. Can you drag the audio so that we don't lose audio? If you can. If you can't, don't worry about it. Put the... Put the sc- uh, nah, I'd rather not test it. But, but you, did you add the audio, though? I don't see it, though, in the sources. In the sources, there's no audio. See in that sources? Yeah, there's no audio. So you have to add it into that source. So they ask him, they say, well, hand us Marwan. What does Marwan do? He takes advantage, okay? He takes advantage of the generosity of Uthman. And he says, oh, Uthman, I seek your protection. And he stays in the house of Sayyidina Uthman. Okay? So Sayyidina Uthman refuses to let him go. This just completely inflames the people. And the civil war starts from there. The demand goes from, hand us over Marwan, to, let us talk to Uthman, to kill Uthman. That's how it escalates. And that's where the civil war starts. That man, Marwan, was like obsessed with putting the, 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 his family in power. Bani Umayyah. Literally obsessed with putting them in power. And he used Sayyidina Uthman. Time passes. What happens? Sayyidina Muawiyah becomes the Khalifa. Muawiyah is a Sahabi. His son, he passes it on to his son, Yazid. Yazid only rules for a short period of time because his father says, makes a dua, Oh Allah, I see in him good. If I'm wrong, then make his life short. So he dies. When it dies, when he dies, there's the lineage of Muawiyah is done with in terms of rulers. There's no males anymore. He had other sons, but that line it's done with. So where does it go? It doesn't go to his brother, right? Yazid's brother. Or, uh, did he have brothers? Yeah, I can't remember. But it goes to his uncle. It goes to Marwan. Marwan is the Khalifa now. Can you believe this? This one who started all these problems, all right? He started all these problems, He's now the Khalifa. How unreal is this? Okay. Aslam is saying, I'm Sunni, but I find it weird and stupid that some people call Yazid a Sahabi. There's two Yazids. One of them was a Sahabi. There's two Yazids. Okay. If you have the audio source and you're confident that we have it, yeah, put it up.
There's two Yazids. That's why. There's Yazid ibn Abi Sufyan. And he was a Sahabi. So don't confuse. There's two Yazid. There's two different Yazids. Okay. And there's two different Abu Sufyans. There's Abu Sufyan ibn al-Harith ibn Abd al-Muttalib. He's the direct cousin of the Prophet There's two different Abu Sufyans. There's two different Yazids. So don't confuse the two. Alright. Now. Marwan, he becomes the Khalifa. And then he passes it on to his son. And he has a couple sons, but the two prominent sons are Abdul Malik and Abdul Aziz. Abdul Malik becomes the Khalifa. Time passes, he dies. And his son, Sulaiman ibn Abdul Malik, becomes the Khalifa. And that's where our story begins. So that's from the father's side. It's Marwan, Abdul Aziz, the son of Marwan, marries the granddaughter of Umar ibn Khattab. So let's, let's take a look now. Let's shift now. We shifted from Marwan's side. Let's go to Umar ibn, ibn Khattab's side. I said Umar ibn Aziz. I meant the granddaughter of Umar ibn Khattab. Umar ibn Khattab is walking one day. Now listen very closely to this amazing story to see the purity of the lineage of the, the mother's side of Umar ibn Abdul Aziz. So Umar ibn Khattab, the Khalifa, he is walking and he hears a conversation. And Sayyidina Umar, it is his right to walk in the streets. If you're talking in your home loud enough that he could hear you, well, that's your problem. So he's walking in the streets and he hears a conversation between a mother and her daughter. The mother says to the daughter, right? The mother says to the daughter, add some water to the milk. She says, no, Umar ibn Khattab said that everyone's doing that now. And to stop doing it because it's ghish. It's cheating. She says, but no one's going to see us. No one's going to know. She then says, well, Allah's watching us. And Umar ibn Khattab hears this and he marks the house. He goes back to his family. He said, who here is not married? They say, your son, Asim. He said, he's looking for a wife. I have somebody. He says, will you marry the woman that I um, suggest for you? He says, yes. I'll accept the suggestion of my dad. He then sends somebody, says, go and find out what family is this house and who that girl is. They go find out and they hear uh, they find out who that family is and Sayyidina Umar sends a proposal. They accept the proposal. And Sayyidina Umar, Ibn al-Khattab's son, Asim, Asim, the son of Umar, marries that girl. From one incident, Umar said, that's the girl I want in our family. One incident where the mother says, add some water to the milk. The girl says, but 
Omar just announced in the khutbah, we're not allowed to do this. She's, because it's, 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 you're cheating. She says, no one's going to see us. She says, but Allah's watching. Right? Like the iman settled in her heart. That was it. That's all it took. And they married. That child, okay, that, uh, that marriage, okay, produced a girl. We don't know her name. We know her by her kunya. What is a kunya? A kunya is, is a nickname. Her kunya, her, she ended up having sons. One of the sons was Asim. The next son was Omar. You see, it's one of the customs of the Near East and the, or, 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 or the Mediterranean area. And the Sham, specifically the Sham. Sham is like the Damascus, the Arabs, they do this. Okay is that they have the names keep going back and forth. So I have my, my, the oldest son names after his father. That oldest son names after his father, and so on and so forth. So you have like Asim Omar, Asim Omar, Asim Omar, all the way down the lineage. That's why it could get confusing sometimes. Okay? But out of respect to the father, the first grandson will be named after the father, and so on and so forth. So you have your Omar ibn Khattab, his son Asim marries the girl who refused to, uh, to cheat on milk. They have a daughter. Okay. That daughter, she's the one who marries Omar, uh, uh, Abdul Aziz, son of Marwan. She marries the, 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 the prince. One of the princes. Now, there's something. There's a phrase called the crown prince. He's the one who's due to become king. Abdul Aziz was never crown prince, son of Marwan, because it went to Abdul Malik. So he was just a prince. Abdul Malik was the crown prince. Abdul Aziz was the second son. Abdul Malik was the first son. So Abdul Aziz was just a prince. He was not the crown prince. He marries this granddaughter of Omar ibn al-Khattab. What do we call this woman? This woman, she then has another child. Her first child, she names him Asim. Her second child names Omar. So she's known as Umm Asim. She's Umm Asim, daughter of Asim. I'm telling you, it can be a little bit confusing. Okay? I have an idea. Uh, why don't you throw the imagery on this scene, which we already have the mic on, so that everyone could see the graph that we made for them. Okay? That makes sense. Since we already have, we know that the audio works on this scene. And I have a graph. I made some graphs for you guys so you could see. So, this uh, lineage is one of power and one of taqwa. Okay? And they come together in this fashion. And that's where you have Omar ibn Abdul Aziz. Huh? Uh, do the do the splits uh, the create the sidebar if you can the whole sidebar the whole shebang and we'll put it up later uh, as I talk. All right. Now, what is the setting of Omar ibn Abdul Aziz's life? This is something. This is a lesson. Okay. This is a lesson. The nature of Islam. Okay. The nature is of Islam is that. What you're going to end up having is 
people, they get weak. They forget. And we have a cycle. There's a, it's a cycle. Everything is cyclical. People go from remembering Allah to forgetting Allah. And the power and their energy of the deen and the truth, it fades. It, you can't deny that this happens. And that's exactly what happens. Okay? So by the time the Umayyads rule, the Umayyads are all about collecting money. That's, that's what they become. They essentially become tax collectors. And it's all about wealth, and they bring back their jahili mentality of tribalism. Okay? Now, by the way, some people may ask, let's go back to this, the daughters. Why aren't the daughters' names known, right? Like, why, aren't, why don't we know these things? Um, there are fashions and whims and fads in every generation. Okay? In, until recently, it was something that you don't want. If you're a woman, the more noble you are, the more veiled you are. Okay? To the point that people don't know who you are. They don't know your name. So they only know your kunya. That was for them, that was what nobility was. All right, we put it up here. There you see it, that it's on the father's side, Marwan ibn Hakam, who, had, who begot Abdul Aziz. And then the mother's side, Umar ibn Khattab, his son Asim, married Umm Asim. And then they brought Umar ibn Abdul Aziz. Okay, there you have it. We can keep it up there for people to look at for a while. All right. So that was the nobility back in the day. You, did, you, you didn't want your name to be known. Okay, it was it was like a thing, like what car do you drive, and that's how they they wanted things to be. Now back to the setting, the Umayyads were so lavish, and they they were more into like Arabism than anything else. They were more into the idea of being Arabs, and that they that that did have a, a value. Okay, one of the values is that they spread Arabic everywhere. That was a big deal, okay? Whereas if you're, a, if you're more into just Tawheed, you'd be more like, well, the, the language you, we all speak is not the issue as long as you understand the Qur'an and, and learn academic Arabic. Today, most of us, most of the Islamic world, most of the, the, the scholars of the Islamic world, they could probably converse in classical Arabic, but... Mainly, it's academic Arabic. What is academic Arabic? I can read classical texts. It doesn't matter. It can make a difference if I can negotiate with a taxi cab or not. That's, not. that's not important. I can read classical texts. And I can write an analysis. But do I have to chit-chat in Syrian or Moroccan or Egyptian dialect or Khaliji? It doesn't make a difference, right? So that's most of... So if you, we were cared about Dawah, that's what we would care about. But we would necessarily care about the way they pushed the Arabic. But they did a lot of bad things. They reinstated tribal alliances. They became essentially collectors and they treated the public funds like family funds. They treated it like a monarchy where the money that's collected is our family's money. They would only put in their family. And so they, 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 they were far away from any moralizing, any da'wah, any, any wa'av. And they just left that to the ulama as long as the ulama left them alone. If the ulama bothered them, they, they dealt with them. Okay? 
So what we have here is that a complete degeneration within the time of the Umayyads. And when I took art history class with Scott Redford from, um, of Georgetown University, this guy had grown, his, his dad was a diplomat, Scott Redford. His, his dad was a diplomat and eventually ended up in Lebanon. And he grew up there and he fell in love with Islamic art and architecture, came back, went to Harvard, did a degree on like uh, Islamic art and architecture, did a law, big PhD, and then he started to, uh, he became a professor. So he had a great class, by the way. His class was really good. I learned so much about Islamic art and architecture. And one of the things he said is that until the 1990s, archaeologists were discovering ruins of Umayyad party houses. Party houses from the Umayyad times. And they could tell it's the Umayyad times because of the nature of the art and architecture. So when it, what they would end up finding is that there were pools. Okay. These pools, it, was, it, it had been written, would be filled with wine and would be filled and they would have the naked slave girls go swim in them. They were basically having these monster bashes and parties all over and that's what their princes were doing. They were far from the dean. At that time, though, there were preachers that had to fight back this, 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 this dissent. They had to resist this dissent amongst them. Sa'id ibn Jubair. And one of the greatest of them, if not the greatest, was Ali Zayn al-Abideen ibn al-Hussein. And he fought hard to do this. How? by living the exact opposite. So, whatever the fitna is, the resolution is to the exact opposite. Right? Like, the medicine has to be the opposite of... The medicine has to be the opposite of the disease. So, at that time, the disease was not kufr, was not shirk anymore, like the time of Quraysh. It was not, like in the time of Sayyidina Omar, enemy armies. It was not in the time of Sayyidina Ali, religious confusion and sedition. You see, every era has a different disease, right? The disease at that time was extravagance, corruption, financial corruption, and all these things. That was the disease at the time. So what is the antidote? The medicine? Simple life. Ali, Zain al-Abdin ibn Hussein lived a simple life. Sa'id ibn Musayyib lived a simple life. Hassan al-Basri lived a simple life. They all tried to portray living the simple life. Okay? And I'm gonna put it, we're going to put up a slide right here. You'll see it. You'll see it's the Umayyad mosque. And the Umayyad, at that time, the art and architecture of the Umayyads was more like depictions of paradise. Right? Every Time and every culture eventually had a, its own. You can make it as big as you, you need to do. All right, so we're going to put this slide up, but it's actually covering a little bit. Okay, it's covering the mosque a little bit, but you'll, it's okay. Right? I, I covered it with text. But you'll get to see what it looks like. Right? And that's the Umayyad Mosque. It was actually a church which was part of the conquered territories, 
and then and therefore it was we were the Muslims had the legal right to convert it into a masjid, and they did that, and that is what until today the Umayyad Mosque, and it's a blessed. I'm looking at it here. Yeah, it is a blessed, blessed masjid. Right there's the amount of ibadah that has been done in that mosque. The amount of everything that has been done in that mosque is amazing. Ilm, ibadah, salihin, awliya that lived in that masjid, okay, and 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 uh, worshipped Allah in that masjid. So these preachers, the theme of that time was do the right thing with your money. Stop using state money and live a simple life leave off this dunya and that's why all of the the, the original sufiya the ogs of tasawwuf okay the sufi ogs like ibrahim ibn adham what was their style what was it like it wasn't even about a lot of dhikrullah it was about leave off this hayat dunya why because the disease that the umayyad spilled upon the ummah I'm not saying all Umayyads were bad, right? Was about wealth. What is today's disease? Today's disease for us Western Muslims. This is Damascus, this picture here we're talking about. The, the Umayyads settled in Damascus. Okay, Until today, no offense to anyone from Damascus. They're very elite people. It's as if some of that elitism of the Umayyads, like absorbed very early on in Islam there and it never left when I see someone from Damascus don't get offended when I see someone from Damascus I'm on guard why? this is an elitist this is not an Egyptian you can chill with and just unwind yourself this is not a Moroccan where you could be as odd as you want to be in front of him and he, the beautiful things about Moroccans they don't care how weird you are okay Egyptians, you could be as informal as anybody. You could be the most relaxed person you want around the Egyptians. When you're around the Damascus, you better sit upright. You better fix yourself. You better be perfectly formal. He may be the nicest guy in the world. That's how they are. They're very formal. And the jahil of them, the people who are far away from Islam, they're very arrogant. Like the, the, the people who are very far away from Islam, they got their nose in the air. And that's Damascus. We're not talking about halab, nice people. Other Hims, uh, uh, all these other cities, they're considered the nice people. But Damascus, Damascus is the oldest city in the world. Their original Islamic roots is through Muawiyah and the Ben Umayyah, very elite people. That's their roots. And they ruled right away. Some like 97 years or something. They ruled. They were so competent. You have to understand this about Sayyidina Muawiyah, Marwan ibn al-Hakam, all the Umayyads. They knew how to control things. Nothing got out of hand with the Umayyads. They didn't play games. But they had no business with the deen. They had ledgers. When Sayyidina Umar ibn Abdul Aziz took over, the amount of documentation that the Umayyads did is unbelievable. They had ledgers for everything. Okay, they were accountants. They were businessmen. All right. Let's go back. The fitna in that time was the extravagance and the misuse of funds. Well, what's are we just studying these people here 
or are we going to take a lesson for ourselves? What's the fitna for our time? It's adopting beliefs that are just totally against Islam. The fitna today is not extravagance, right? Today, you don't, you're not making a big deal if you go live simply, right? You're not, it's not affecting anything. Hey, Habib, could you pull up the slide that has the border? I just emailed it to you. This, the, the fit, you go and live a simple life today, you're not affecting anything. Today, to live a, the, the, the fitna of today is the adoption of ideas and beliefs and political, moral, spiritual, religious positions that are completely contrary to Islam. That's the fitna of today. So what is the antidote to that? Is clarity in beliefs. Okay? Clarity in beliefs. All right, that's what we need today. To be clear in what we believe is better and greater and is the most important thing that we, we can do. It's to be clear in our beliefs. And... We don't believe in this. We do believe in that. That's the fitna of today. And I'm telling you, when I look at the situation and someone says, listen, I don't believe in this latest fad. I'm against it. It's almost like that is their martyrdom of today. And that's the medicine. It is to study, to learn what our deen is, to be clear about it, and to have the guts to declare it. Okay? And face all the backlash Hopefully you won't face any backlash. Okay? Certain things, it should be in the bottom, the last email I sent you. Yeah, click on all those. You might see them there. Yeah, see that one? Does it have a border on it? No, I never sent it to you? No, I never sent it then. Okay, it's okay. No problem, no worries. No problem. Certain things should not have nuance in them. You don't need nuance. There's no nuance. Certain things have a lot of nuance. You have to know the difference. You can't, shaitan cannot trick you and nuance what should be clear and it's binary. How many gods we got? It's a binary. It's one or zero or more than one. That's it. There's no nuance here. Okay? Certain things you say steer far away from. All right? And you just, you don't play with fire. Is there any nuance with a child and a stove? No, stay away. There's no nuance. There's no, well, if there's an adult around, you can be next to the stove. If you have a protective shield, you can be. Stay away from the stove, discussion over. So certain things have no nuance in them. Certain things have a lot of, like what has a lot of nuance in them? Zakah rules. There's a lot of difference of opinion on do I pay zakah on an investment that I have that's way over there that I'll never see again for 50 years and it's not even in my hands? There's a lot of discussion on that. We can have nuance on that. But certain things have no nuance. I mean, we've said it until we're blue in the face about the LGBT. Just for, don't nuance anything. There's no nuance there. Okay, well, I support the law, but I don't support it morally. No, I'm sorry. Sharia is the law. Boom. Certain things have no nuance. So, so you have to understand when you read the context that don't go and see, oh, well, Omar ibn Abdul Aziz, his piety 
his the way he worshipped Allah was all about doing living simply. So that's what I want to do. That's not what affects right now. You got to do what's effective. So you see a note. So that's the, that's the world that that's the world Omar ibn Abdulaziz has entered into, is where the fitna was a ton and a ton of extravagance, like, like just if never had never been seen before in the Ummah or even by the Arabs. So the preachers were pushing back on this. Hassan al-Basri, we said. Ali Zain al-Abidin al-Husayn. Sayyid al-Musayyib. Sayyid al-Jubayr. These are preachers. They're preaching to the people. And the hearts of the people accepted this because most people, they don't have the money to be extravagant in the first place. That's the beauty of it, right? It's like, yeah, I, I can. this is a layup, right? I'm telling you, Allah has given us, Muslims, a layup. The position on the existence of Allah, the things like gender, the things like basic things of the deen. These are layups. Wallahi, this is so easy. Theoretically, it may be difficult to practice it in your various workspaces. You're rubbing elbows with people. So I get that. But sins, making mistakes, being weak is very different from knowing true from false. And say, this is what's true. Yeah, I'm weak, but this is what's tr- truth. All right? So, we have a layup. At that time, it was much harder, in my opinion, to not live an extravagant lifestyle when you have a lot of money. So now let's zoom in on part three. We start, said, what is the origins of Sayyidina Umar ibn Abdul Aziz? What's his lineage? What was the setting like? Let's look at part three. Part three is, what was he like? Omar ibn Abdul Aziz grew up a prince like all the other princes. No difference. He used to wear the most expensive clothes and had the most expensive, uh, 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 most expensive everything. He had the most expensive atur, so much so that when he walked down a, 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 a street or a side road, everyone would know that he walked by. He was the envy of everybody and everyone wanted to marry him. Okay. He was just one of those, you know, you have a big family. One of them is going to be a superstar, right? Not everyone, but someone in a big family. You got a lot of boys, right? Okay. One of them is going to be the star of the family. Habib behind the desk is like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> right? You got a, a huge family and he was one of the older grandsons of Marwan ibn al-Hakam. Okay? Even though his dad was not the oldest, but he was one of those. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes it happens that the younger child gets married and has a boy first before the other one, before the older sibling. So his cousin, his uncle was the Khalifa, then Abdul Malik ibn Marwan, he's the one who built the Dome of the Rock. Abdul Malik ibn Marwan is the one who built the Dome of the Rock. Okay? And his cousin becomes a Khalifa after Abdul Malik dies. So his cousin is now the, the Khalifa. Right? Suleiman ibn Abdul Malik. Sorry, he wasn't... Omar ibn Abdul was not the oldest of the grandsons. But he was one of the older cousins. Okay? So Abdul, Suleiman ibn Abdul Malik is now the Khalifa. Omar ibn Abdul Aziz gets appointed to become 
the mayor or the governor of Medina. This is a massive, massive, massive turning point in the life of Omar ibn Abdul Aziz. Why? He gets there and he finds Medina is a city of knowledge. This is a city of knowledge. And a city of piety. This is not Damascus. This is not where he grew up. Like you grew up in New York City, right? You grew up in Manhattan. Then you get a job in, a, in, a, in, a, in like a more spiritual city. I, I can't think of an example in America, right? But he, grew up, he grows up in Damascus. He gets the job as governor in Medina. When he got that job, he started to change. He had now, he was a, he's a young governor. All the ulama are older than him. So Allah, in fact, made it easy for him to respect these governors. You see, to these scholars. See, if you're, if you're older and all the scholars are younger, it's hard for you to respect them, right? They don't know anything about the world, okay? They, um, it's hard for the elder to respect the younger. But he goes in and all the scholars are older than him. He respects them. He honors them. When they speak, he gets embarrassed. He follows exactly what they do. Until the bond between him and the scholars is like an unflexible knot. They love him. Of course, an Umayyad Khalifa coming here, and they're like, okay, who's this young hotshot who's ruling over us now? That's how it starts. But over time, his respect for the scholars renders him and makes him beloved to them. He studies with them so much, he becomes a talib ilm. He becomes a talib ilm, right? And he becomes a faqih as well. So yeah, he's very nicely dressed. He's the governor, he's the ruler. But he becomes, first it starts from respecting these elder scholars, to studying with them, sitting in their gatherings, to being their students, to being a faqih himself. So much so that Imam Malik, generation later, when he quotes and he gives evidences, the saying of Umar ibn Aziz is evidence for him. And the greatest scholars that Malik says their word is law and is sunnah are the seven jurists of Medina. Who are they? They are the seven that Umar ibn Abdul Aziz was known to, get, to call them to, to, to the majlis for counsel. And on top of that, there were five more added later on. So in the beginning, there were just seven. And then later on, five more were added. And these are known as al-fuqaha al-sabah, the seven jurists of Medina. When they agree on something, that fatwa is sunnah. Okay? When they had something, they, and, uh, uh, the way they did things, that is sunnah. That is greater than anything else because they are the inheritors. They are the, the elites of the scholars of the second generation. They were tabi'in. They had met sahaba, all of them. So that's the second, third part of our talk today is the character, the personality, and then the upbringing, and then his move into the world of politics. And when he was assigned to Medina, that transformed him. He was still the Umayyad prince, 
and he still hadn't fulfilled what would become his greatest legacy. Okay? He's, that element of his character, which was austerity, had not yet came about. There was no reason for it to come about yet. Omar ibn Abdul Aziz was one of those special kids as a youth who just, he gets life. And Habib Omar has a video clip in which he states, he quotes Omar ibn Abdul Aziz, in which Omar ibn Abdul Aziz says, مَا هَمَمْتُ إِلَّا أَدْرَكْتُهُ I never desired something except I got it. I, every time I put my eye on something, I get it. Okay. Even the khilafa. And I got it. Now we enter the fourth part of this talk. How did he become Khalifa? When his cousin is the Khalifa, and his cousin has many sons, and his cousin is like similar age to him. They're similar age. So how are you going to become the Khalifa if the Khilafa is number one? It's not even in your family. Your line. It's in your cousin's line. Your cousin, he's got sons. You yourself are not the oldest son of your family. So while he was in Medina as governor, as a youth, the idea that he would ever be the Khalifa was far away. Like it was, you couldn't connect the dots. You could, there was no foreseeable path to him becoming Khalifa. Did you ever see, watch the American elections when they're starting to see that, when they're starting to count? It's almost like a, watching the Super Bowl. The path, what is it? What's the number? 270? 270 electoral votes. You need two, 270 points to become president. And so they know that certain states are going to go red, certain states are going to go blue. And so they, they look around and they see that this person, he has no path to become president. Because once you lose Ohio, Florida, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, these are the five swing states. If you lose three of them, the path to president, uh, really hard. Ohio, Florida, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona. The five major swing states. And that's why every time you see someone running for president, he's in Florida, then Ohio, then he go to Pennsylvania, then Michigan. Then Arizona. Like he just, there's no need for a Democrat ever to come to New Jersey. It never happens. We always go blue. A Democratic for president will never go to New Jersey, New York, California. There's no need for that, right? He'll never, also never go to Texas because you know you're not winning Texas. The day that Texas becomes a swing state, all right, you, the Republicans will never win the White House again. But Texas has gone hard red, right? Hard red, right? I'm never going to win Texas. Some people were saying that Texas is up for grabs soon because the amount of Hispanic voters and the Hispanic voters will probably be Democrat uh, uh, leaning, but that's probably out of reach for now at least. Not, uh, so, there was no path for Omar ibn Abdul Aziz to become Khalifa until something nobody expected happened. Suleiman ibn Abdul Malik, he fell ill. When he fell ill, his oldest son was like nine years old. He had like four sons. His oldest one was like nine or, nine or ten years old. And he fell ill. 
And they looked around and they said, well, all right, start preparing your son. First of all, they didn't really think that Suleiman Abdelmalik's sickness was that bad, but it was. Right? It was really bad. And there was this time where they started to feel there's no way he's going to get it better, he's going to die. So he started to dress up his sons and put them out, but nobody respected this. And the, the viziers were like, no, we are not accepting, we're not accepting this. One of the signs of the weak, weakness of a monarchy is when they start putting up like 10-year-old kings, right? And it happens in the history books, you'll see it, like the, guy, the king dies and his, old, his next son is 10 years old. Well, what happens? The vizier manipulates the kid. Or they outright kill him. It's one of the weaknesses of a monarchy. So advisors come together and they say, your best route, skip your kids. Look to your cousins. Of the cousins, Omar is the best one. And so the Khilafah falls into the lap of Omar ibn Abdul Aziz with no effort on his own, not even imagining that this, he, there, like you couldn't see a path, except that he said, I was always think that I want to be the Khalifa. And I want, I'm going to shoot to be the Khalifa, even though there was no path. So this actually teaches us, very similar to Sayyidina Zakaria and Sayyidina Yahya, when you ask Allah for something, you don't have to see the path to it. Because you're not the one who's going to make it happen. Allah is going to make it happen and you know He can make anything happen. So you don't have to see a path to it. And this is one of the mistakes that many, many people make. They never even do something because they think that they have to see the whole path to that goal before they even start or they even desire it. And that's why they never achieve anything. Okay? And that's why the real achievers in life are dreamers. You have to be 50% dreamer, 50% Executor. When you execute something, you don't need to know steps two, three, and four, and you don't need to worry about the blowback either. You just need to know step one. Like, what's the first step to having a business? Right? Find something you want to sell. That's the first step. Sell it. Then get better at the process. Over. It's like I said the other day. If you the path to making five thousand dollars, if you can sell something and gain back five dollars, repeat that a thousand times. Right? Yeah, it might take you a while, but you think that by the 500th time, you're going to be doing the same thing? No, you will have gotten 500 times better. So it may end up taking you 300 sales to hit 5,000, right? Uh, life is like that. But whoever sits there and he says, well, I need, to have, I need to see the whole stairway to heaven before I even try. No, you're not going to get that. Okay? All you need in terms of execution is the first step. And in terms of goals... You don't even need to see any, all, anything except you know that Allah can make this happen, so I'm going to want it. I'm going to go for it. So that's what Omar ibn Abd al-Aziz did, and that's how he became Khalifa. That's part four of today's session on Omar ibn Abd al-Aziz, how he became the Khalifa. Number five. This is the lesson that we can all okay, implement in our lives. Because kullukum ra'in Every one of you is a shepherd and every one of you is responsible for their flock. By the way, you can get this book at meccabooks.com Okay. And you can put Safina as the, the code and you can get the book. All right. 
Mecca book, get this book, dot, put it, put Safina in the code, in the, uh, what do they call it? Coupon code. All right. And you can get a discount. It's a really good book. So, and I'm taking, I'm giving you the summaries. What is the lesson that we can learn from his methodology? When Omar ibn Abdul Aziz became the Khalifa, he viewed himself as the inheritor of Omar ibn Khattab, not Marwan ibn Hakam. And that's the beauty of intermarriage. Okay? So the cross pollination of Omar ibn Khattab and uh, uh, and Marwan ibn al-Hakam, you think, what a strange combination. Okay? No. Allah knows what he's producing through this. He viewed himself as the inheritor of Umar ibn al-Khattab. He had the same name. So you, you, you tend to have an affinity of people who look like you and who have the same name as you. Any of you has many kids. You have one kid that looks like you and one kid that doesn't. You, you have to be fair in your words, in your hands, right? And as much as you can with your heart, but you can't control your heart. I guarantee you, whether father says it or not, he'll never say it, but you will always lean towards the, the kid that looks like you, right? The kid has the same eyes, it's the eyes. The most important thing is the eyes, right? The kid has the same eyes as the dad, you're going to feel like, like if you have an affinity to that kid. Me and you, we're connected. Kid that looks completely different from you, it's like, uh, of course, he's my son and everything. But he looks completely different. There's a different connection. Taqwa can change this, though. Don't go, there's two types of love. There's a love that is rational-based. There is a love that is personal, natural, and there's a love that is spiritual. You got to understand this, and you have to know this. It's going to help you a lot in life. Love that is, is rational is about rights and responsibilities as Allah has given me. I have, to be, I have to give you the equal attention as I give you. I gave you a gift worth $5. I have to give you a gift worth $5. I let you pick the gift. I have to let you pick the gift. I scold you for doing that. I got to scold you for doing that. That's the rational love. It's fairness. Okay? The natural love is that is what I just said? Like, if you see someone who looks like you, you're gonna naturally love them. You, if someone is on your personality type, you're gonna naturally love them. Okay. If you're competitive and you got one kid who's competitive and one kid who likes to make peace, you're gonna like the competitive kid, right? Or we should say not make peace because that's not the opposite. Maybe like one kid who is not competitive, right? He can feel aligned with the competitive. That's the natural love. Regarding that, the Prophet ﷺ said, nobody controls that. He said, oh Allah, judge me by what I control, not what I can't control. Because he loved Sayyidah Aisha more than anyone else. Sayyidah Aisha had a magnetism to her. Okay? He loved her. Thirdly, is spiritual love. Spiritual love is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If two people have taqwa, and they go worshipping Allah together, and they go doing things of ibadah together, Allah Ta'ala will bring them together. And that, for many husbands and wives, you wonder. Sometimes, from your grandparents, all of our lineages, there's going to be an arranged marriage. There will be, in our lineage, a, a moment where 
Um, by the way, Mona Lisa decluttering, if you want to see the whole video, swap over to YouTube. Go over to YouTube to see the whole video, to see the whole screen. Because when we, when we use our camera, I'm talking to the Instagrammers here. When we use our camera, we have to... Uh, uh, Instagram is skinny, so we can't cater to Instagram. Uh, the YouTube is wide. So Mona Lisa, go to YouTube channel Safina Society. Okay. And you'll see it there. So husbands and wives, guarantee there's going to be a moment in your family where a daughter, uh, 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 one of your fathers was knocked on his door and said, come, we found a wife for you. Really? And then across the street, they're knocking on the door. Daughter, come. Yeah, what's going on? Oh, get dressed. You're getting married today. What? Come, we're late. Let's go. Move. Wait, I'm getting who? What do you mean who? You don't ask that question. You get married. Khalas, that's it. <laughs> Rely on Allah. Game over. How many times has this happened in India? And I'm sure it happened everywhere, right? The no, the whole family. The bride is the last to know. She has no clue what's going on. Husband is like, who? Go and say salam alaikum. Say salam alaikum to who? That's your wife. What? And they went on, they lived happily ever after. Now, I don't know how many times they lived happily ever after. We'll never know. But some people have seen these types of marriages and they worked. Sometimes they worked, sometimes it didn't. Right? I, w- I really wish to know if when people choose their spouses, what are the chances of marriage? In the same like era, if they were like completely chosen by random, how many times it work? Because I think that people's personality, some people say, All right, I'm going to make this work. I'm going to change myself. But key is, spiritual connection between the two is both of them have taqwa. If a man has taqwa towards his wife, what does that mean? Shoot, I upset her. I shouldn't upset her. Okay? I'll go make things right. And she has taqwa to her husband. What does that mean, taqwa? Don't we have taqwa to Allah? Yes, taqwa to Allah is always through something, right? A test of some sort, right? And that's the husband. And she says, for example, I know that he doesn't want that, so I'm not going to do it, okay? And he says, you know what? She's doing something that's not right. I have to advise her. Or she says, his, his, he's making business with these people who are no good. I have to tell him, fear Allah. Oh, husband, okay? And they have taqwa towards one another. They never let each other go into deviation. They never let each other be upset. When they make salah, they make salah together. They make sure they... That's taqwa towards one another. Then Allah Ta'ala puts a spiritual love between them, and that is more reliable, more predictable, and more longer-lasting than natural love. Natural love, I love her because he's so beautiful. I love him because he's so funny and handsome, and rich. That stuff can all go. And another guy could come who's richer and funnier, and more handsomer. And another woman could come because you look at the same, if you look at the same woman for 10 years, you think that you're going to have the same wow excitement. You get used to that, right? And not to say it goes away, but it's not something to build anything on. It's a nice perk, Right? That's all, I'll, that's, all, that's what it is. It's a nice perk. Natural love is a nice perk. Nothing more, right? Spiritual love and rational love, the taqwa towards one another, that's what works, okay? So how do we get into that subject? 
What were we saying that we got into this topic of? Oh, I was saying, Omar ibn Abdul Aziz, he felt an affinity to Omar ibn Khattab. So when he ruled, he ruled exactly like him. What was the methodology of Omar ibn Abdul Aziz? This is the important part here. It's a management philosophy. Until today, it's the number one marriage philosophy. Top down. Which means what? As you are the manager and the president and the CEO, whatever you are, the father, the head of household, the khalifa, the king, as you are, it's going to trickle down. So the first strategy, the first thing that Sayyidina Umar ibn Abdul Aziz did was he went and he attacked himself. And he got rid of all his wealth. And he divested all of his investments. He got rid of everything. Later on, like he, uh, within the first year, he wanted to make hajj. He remembered, oh, I have another investment out there. When he got that investment, he thought about it. He said, hold on, this investment's been with me since I'm Khalifa. How do I know that that investor now like, didn't do better? Because now he's got the Khalifa's money. So he said, this is invalid for me. He put it in the state money. He cut his family off from ever dipping their hands in the treasury. So much so that one day his daughter came to talk to him like this, covering her mouth, talking to him while covering her mouth. He said, why are you covering your mouth? She said, Father, is all we had to eat today, all, I had, all we, we had of food was an onion. So my, my, my lunch was a raw onion. That's what she ate for lunch, right? That's how austere he lived. Because if I want to spread this austere, if I want to, to neutralize this extravagance, I have to do it myself. Omar ibn Abdul Aziz, he did not rule long. Okay? Within a very short period of time, they could count his ribs. And how do we know that? He was making tawaf around the Kaaba for hajj. And his ihram was... You know, right shoulder has to be uncovered, right? It dipped because he was so skinny, they could see his ribs. So if you, whatever you want to see in your family, whatever you want to see in the community, do it yourself. Because it's naturally going to seep down into the people. And anytime you go into an organization, and this organization has a character, Let's say this organization, it's like everyone in this organization is arrogant. I guarantee you the leader's arrogant. It cannot be any other way. Everyone in this organization smiles. The leader smiles, right? So the best way to influence a, a group is to do it for yourself. Then he attacked his, emo, his own, when I say attacked, I mean he moved on them with this philosophy, his own family. And he made sure no, none of his children and his wife did not eat or dress or ornament the house from the state treasury. And he said, we have to have the house of the simplest Muslims. Now, the Khilafah was ruled from the palace. The palace of the Khalifa was before him, was so out of control with extravagance, he turned it into a monastery. And the elites stopped coming. The elites of the Umayyads, they stopped coming. 
There's nothing to do there. There's no seven-course meals here. There are no, there's no wine here. There are no dancers here. There are no singers here. There's no poets here. Okay? There's no philosophical discussions here. No. This is Omar ibn Abdul Aziz. None of that nonsense. Okay? Second thing he did. What is the purpose of our state? That's the question he asked. What's the purpose of all this? Purpose of all this that we, Umayyads, have become nothing other than tax collectors. So much so that when people came to become Muslim, to enter Islam, they were previously paying the jizya, a decent tax. And they would enter Islam, what would the Umayyads do? Turn them away. If you enter Islam, you don't have to pay the jizya anymore. Right? So he said, they said, we want the jizya. So they would turn him away. Omar ibn Abdul Aziz altered all of that and he brought these people into Islam and they warned him. They said, you're going to bankrupt us. If these Christians stop paying the jizya, we lose our money. He says, but we make the prophet happy. That's the purpose of what the prophet came with. And it pleases Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, so I don't care if we lose all the jizya. He abolished all the false taxes. He asked for all of the taxes to be brought to him on a ledger. He said, all of these are false taxes. You just gave them different names. You gave it different names. Okay? And these names do not change the essence of what it is. So he abolished all of these taxes. The state treasury, which was the playhouse and the fund of the Umayyads, it was shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Okay? Shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Because of what he... But! But! The Ummah and business was thriving more and more and more. Why? Because he eliminated all taxes and he eliminated all tariffs. So the Umayyad said, oh, if you, want to, if, you want to trade, if you want to go from here to here to trade, you got to pay a tariff. They take that money. So he eliminated all these tariffs and he eliminated all these taxes and he allowed all free trade. Anyone could co-trade in the Ummah with anyone else. You don't have to pay a tariff by crossing a border or pay a tax or pay anything. So business boomed in his time, but the royal palace shrunk in its wealth. And they were having none of it. But now that, that is the austerity and the cleansing of the financial corruption that was happening in the Bani Umayyah. He then installed sharp-eyed, rigorous, and strong accountants on the treasury. No one is going to take a dinar. Dinar is the gold coin. Dirham is the silver coin. No one's going to take a dinar or a dirham without it being approved. It has to be lawful. And he fired tons, dozens and, and dozens of his own cousins and relatives from positions of rule and money management of the Ummah. That was the first thing that he did. The second thing he did is he redirected and he has the purpose of our state, of our government, 
What's our purpose? And he said, Allah has sent Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam as a prophet, not a tax collector. So the purpose and the aim of the Umayyad empire will from here on be a da'wah ilallah. And he gathered the scholars and he gave stipends to selected scholars with the sole purpose and job of collecting hadith. Gathering hadith. Okay. And the idea of what would become the muwatta of Imam Malik was born in the era of Omar ibn Abdul Aziz. He, the first person he gave this job to was a man by the name of Abu Bakr ibn Hazm. Okay. So that when someone says, well, the Muwatta was the first book of hadith, but the idea of collecting hadith in books that could be preserved started in the time of Omar ibn Abdul Aziz. And he feared that knowledge be lost. So compile knowledge, compile hadith. Knowledge at that time was hadiths. Okay. Compile the hadith. And he paid them to do this. Don't do anything else all day. Wake up in the morning, compile hadith. We'll take care of your, your, your food and your drink and your, and your home and your family and your clothes. Okay. Spreading the dawah. Spreading the dawah. Many people don't know this. I'm going to read this to you. Ya Ahl al-Hind was sinned. People of India, people of Sind, listen to this. In the book Futuh al-Buldan, al-Baladhuri says that Omar ibn Abdul Aziz, he wrote letters to the rulers and the people outside of Islam. And he wrote a letter to the Rajas of India. Habib, your ancestors. The Rajas of India. He had an ancestor at some point. Okay. Who was a Raja. And he wrote them letters inviting them to Islam. If you do so, I will guarantee the existence of your kingdom, cooperation with our kingdom. Okay. And you will get all of the rights of a Muslim. We will defend you and we will not come near your money if you accept Islam. Because when we do the da'wah, we do the da'wah, we don't say, oh, only accept Islam just for the sake of Allah alone, nothing else, no matter what happens. Yes, we know that that's the goal. But when you bring someone into Islam, you lure them even with security of the dunya. Didn't not the Prophet ﷺ write letters? Aslim, taslim. Enter into the Islam, you'll be at peace. Otherwise, there might be a war. Okay? So... The name and the fame of Omar ibn Abdul Aziz reached these lands. Ismail ibn Abdullah, the governor of the Maghrib. Okay. He also did the same thing. Okay. He initiated da'wah on the command of Omar ibn Abdul Aziz and the example of Omar ibn Abdul Aziz to the Berbers. And it says here that when it comes to India, seven, seven major governors of lands accepted Islam at the hands at these letters because of these letters and the people around them all accepted Islam and they changed their names they didn't have to but they changed their names unless it was like um, Abd of you know what's what's one of the, what's their uh, Hindu god called Shiva? Shiva unless it was like Abd Shiva then they didn't have to change it but they changed their name to Muslim names 
In North Africa, they did the same thing. Okay? Dawa, dawa, dawa to these tribes. Trans-Oxania. Trans means to pass. And I guess Oxania must be the river. One of the names of the rivers. But in Iraq, there's the Tigris and the Euphrates River. Beyond that river is what the Islamic heritage we call the lands Mawra and Nahr. That which is beyond the river. Okay? And that leads to Persia, to Khurasan, which is today's Afghanistan. He sent letters to these people of Khurasan, ensuring them, okay, you will not lose anything and you will gain our protection. Okay? And many, 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 many of them entered Islam. So the first thing that he did was the financial reforms. He stopped the corruption. He stopped his family dipping into the, the state treasury and he eliminated illegal taxes. The second thing he did was the dawah. And he made his governor's du'at. Go, do dawah. The third thing he did was he commanded the right and forbid the wrong. Okay? He started commanding the right and forbidding the wrong. He would write to people, to governors, okay, and he defended the sharia inside the land of Islam. Really, we should have mentioned that second because that makes more sense than to... to to come after Dawah. Okay? And he wrote to his governors. He made them preachers of this too. If, and there are a lot of different instances, and we have a lot of his letters here. Right? His troops, for example. Where do you dwell? How do you trade? For example, funerals, yelling at funerals, little things even. Women going to attend the burials is makruh in the Sharia. And it can opinion haram in the Sharia, right? Like the Prophet forbade it, but then he didn't yell, you know, say something if a woman showed up. But he, he forbade it, but he didn't say anything if a woman showed up. Maybe she's showing up, it's a sad time. It's not the place to forbid the wrong. So it has to be done outside the funeral setting. And he did. So that's one of the things that he... He did many other things, little things and big things. The last part of our talk. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَتَوَاسُوا بِالْحَقِّ وَتَوَاسُوا بِالصَّبْرِ If you're going to establish the haqq, you have to have sabr. Because not everybody likes the haqq. A lot of people do not like the truth. And his own family could not withstand what he was doing. His shrinking, their access to state funds, his firing them, and his trajectory and complete transformation of the trajectory of the ummah, the state, the, the Umayyad state, from collecting money and partying and enjoying it, to dawah, forbidding the wrong, collecting knowledge, they couldn't stand it. After two years... And a few months, they poisoned him. They had a servant poison him and he died. He only ruled for two and a half years. Omar ibn Abdul Aziz, his reign, he was this famous that he is the mujaddid, the first mujaddid of Islam, and they killed him 
after only 29 months of rule. He did not even reach three years of rule. So imagine the, uh, the, the impact that he had. He only ruled two and a half, two years, five Now, saying Omar ibn Khattab, he ruled 10 years. You say, of course, anyone who ruled 10 years, you're going to eventually have an impact, right? Omar ibn Abdulaziz only ruled two years and five months. So his impact, the scholars themselves in his lifetime were saying he is the reviver of our religion. He's the mujaddid of the sharia and of the deen. And he was poisoned. That is why Allah says, establish the truth and uphold patience. Okay? Advise to the truth and advise to patience. Because you will need to be patient with the blowback if you are talking truth. Okay? Is any time that you're, 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 you're helping the deen, benefiting the deen, you got to help and benefit where it's suitable. Now, if we went on the same mission that he went on, no one would say anything because it's not an issue. The extravagance in our communities, Western Muslims like us that we're talking, having a Tesla is not the issue. No one cares. It doesn't affect you. A lot of good people are doing that, right? It's not an issue. So you can talk that talk all you want. No one's going to ever affect you. No one's gonna, there's no blowback. Because it's not relevant. It's not a problem. If you are going to speak about other truths, there will be a blowback. Okay? Certain other truths, people don't like to hear. You're going to get a blowback from these things. Okay? This book, again, is called Saviors of Islamic Spirit. You can get it from meccabooks.com. We can stay at the, uh, at the full screen now. MeccaBooks.com is where you can get this book. You can also be a supporter of this, and I have really a, I want to be very grateful to some of our more recent supporters whose names haven't come up yet in the credits. Okay. uh, May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless your investment in the Safina Saidi podcast. Uh, are nothing but facts live stream and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you all for your continued support you can be a supporter of this uh, uh, live stream at patreon.com backslash Safina Society okay thirdly your Udhiya this year where do you want to slaughter you can send your slaughter to Kenya this year okay you can send your slaughter through Ame Conscience all right, read that, read that website, Habib, for us. Am I conscience? Am I conscience.org slash read. Okay. All right. Or does it say slash eng slash read? Okay, put that one in if you have the time. Yeah. Keep the other one up, but put this one in. And then we'll, after we're done with that, We'll go to the let's we'll go to the full screen again. Okay. All right.
So that's basically... Um, the life of Umar ibn Abdul Aziz. And he paid the price. He's a shaheed. He's the mujaddid of our ummah. There you go. You see that website at the bottom there? You can give your, your slaughter, your udhiyah. All right, you know what? Let me do this. Let me sit nice and proper and let me do a little promo that they could cut out. Okay? They could cut out this clip of the video. All right? Here we go. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. This year, you can give your udhiyah for Eid, your qurbani, for much less money and for a much happier and much more needed cause, which is the fuqara of our ummah in Kenya. All right, in the land of Kenya, there are so many people who are in need of this qurbani. And this organization, Ame Conscience, and you can see the website, or which way am I pointing? Down that, right there, the website down there. You can, uh, uh, you will get a video of your slaughter being done, so that you number one, you're certain that it's done in the halal way, and you get the feeling of sakina that it was done, and your name will be mentioned. That okay, this is the qurbani of so and so. This is his sheep or goat, and here's the slaughter. It has been slaughtered. It will now be distributed to the fuqara of Kenya. All right, so please visit amaconscience.org and whatever that website says what does it say backslash okay backslash eng for english backslash eid all right and okay good and you'll put it in the in the comment section so please visit that and support it look even if you did a qurbani here what are you going to lose 139 french what is it what is that 139 euros 139 dollars whatever it is doesn't make a difference it's a small amount of money, and I guarantee you, your Air Force Ones and your Jordans cost more than that. And the amount of coffee that you've drank uh, last two months is probably more than that, right? Well, if, you, if, if a bag costs 40 bucks or 26 bucks, and you finish a bag a week, right? Especially if you're going to Starbucks. And if you're going to Starbucks and ordering the, these flowery drinks, right, with, uh, with five layers to the name, then I'm sure you spent 139 bucks uh, over the last six months drinking coffee. So uh, support and help this uh, beautiful effort. Jazakumullah khair. Wassalamu alaikum. All right, good. Now let's get to our question and answer. Let's go to the full screen now. And we only have a few minutes for Q&A today because today it's, we don't have a, a, a lot of QAs. Uh, Put your questions again from scratch because I don't scroll up anymore. Why do I not scroll up anymore? I don't scroll up anymore because the person, if you put the question at like 2 o'clock, he might be gone by 3 o'clock. Maybe he had to leave. Maybe they had to go to Wimbledon. Maybe he had to go to the U.S. Open. Maybe they had to go to um, uh, the French Open. All right. Maybe they had to go to work. So, and, and, and I want to answer the question live. All right, I want to I want to answer these questions as live as possible. So put your your links here, and um, Instagrammers, if somebody could type it in because I don't speak French, I don't know how to write it in French. So if you could possibly put your um, put the website in there for Ame Conscience. All right, let's take the first question. Siku ninety five says, "Can you swim while fasting?" The answer is yes. However, 
if you swallow water and you may swallow the water, you're responsible for that, okay? Because it's, it's if you're sloppy about it, okay? If you're safe about it, fine. But if you're sloppy about that and you end up swallowing water, you may end up owing qada and kafara. If you just accidentally swallow water, it's only qada. But if you're sloppy about it, and you're talking, laughing, and splashing water, and then you swallow it, no, you, you, you're sloppy about that. You owe qada and kafara for that. Shockwave, the new X-Men. By the way, we did not forget. Yeah, you have shockwave. We did not forget that you will be sending us info at safinasided.org, your video of your slaughter, because we challenged him. Okay? And he said, I'm nervous. We said, all right, well, we're going to end this nervousness. You're going to show us the video of your udhiyah. Right? And I told him, I'll put up my video too, just so that he doesn't feel like, oh, I'm the only one. No, I'll put it up too. Mine and yours. Shockwave brings up a, an important question here. He says, is it true that we shouldn't fast Arafah because it's on Friday? No, that's not true at all. We fast, definitely fast on Yom Arafah, even if it's a Friday. Number one, the idea that we cannot fast on Friday is not correct in the first place. The, what is forbidden is the intent, the intent of imitating the Jews and having Sabbath and creating an Islamic Sabbath. That's what's haram or sinful, that intention. But the fast itself is valid. And if you have no such intention, then it's all valid. Right? We have no problem, absolutely. Okay? Um, absolutely no problem in fasting on Friday. Nefila. Zaratustra says, Today I was reading a book in which Azazil slash Iblis, because Iblis's nickname was Azazil, the glory of Allah, because he was glorious worshiper of Allah. He's represented as a devil with a goat. In other words, his face is a goat. Of course, that's the uh, European, they, their, their image of um, Satan is a goat head. Do we have anything? Uh, does that have anything to do with our slaughtering goats? Nothing whatsoever, and we don't say he has a goat head at all. I don't know who made that image up. I have no idea. Why the poor goat, right? Of all animals, why the goat, right? And it make it look so nasty, like yeah. no eyes. Yeah, it's a nasty image. But he's 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 like ripped though. Yeah. You notice that? <laughs> what the are you trying to make him look good? I don't know. There's no there's nothing like that in our religion. Let's go to Muslim, she says, is it a bad bit to fast one day or Arafah according to local moon sitting and one day according to the place in Arafah Mecca? There's nothing wrong with you having to, with you fasting both days. Okay. Omar Dizman, is Arafah more important as it's on a Friday? Way more barakah. The fact that Arafah is on a Friday. By the way, tonight everybody, Sleep early, set your alarms, and you we really have to have a good tahajjud tonight. There's no excuse. No excuse. Once a year, Yom Arafah comes once a year. And on top of that, it's Laylatul Jum'ah. So sleep, no hanging out late at night. Sleep at night. Okay? 
And, okay, uh, pray to Hedjid. Get up for a nice, good, t- you have, don't you have to get up for Suhoud anyway? This question is from Kala White. She says, what do you say about someone who says that he can say bad things about the Sahaba that the Prophet said bad things about? Show me one such hadith where the Prophet says a bad thing about a Sahabi. That person is an ignorant fool because any such time the Prophet was upset with the Sahabi is overrided by his saying, don't ever talk about my Sahaba. Wait a second, I mean, I could say what I want about my own kids. You can't. I mean, I could smack him around all that. Well, I don't smack around my kids. But I could yell at him and call him every name in the book for being lazy or whatever I want to say. But you don't utter a word. It's not your kid. The prophets, I said, those are his followers. They're not your followers. They're your sayyids. So the logic is just not there. Halawite, tell that person. to get his logic in order. Okay? Next question. Let's go to... What time to get up for Tahajjud is a question. The time to get up for Tahajjud is just go to Fajr and subtract maybe like today as a special day, a little more than an hour. So you do ibad a nice 30-40 minutes salah and dua and dhikr and then you have to have suhoor. Right? And then a buffer between suhoor and Fajr so that you don't accidentally eat inside of Fajr. It's called Imsek. Ten, ten minute buffer is good enough. Imsek. And then you pray Fajr. Okay. What if a woman is not fasting on this day? It doesn't matter. She gets up from, for dua. It's still time of dua. The night, the Tahajjud night, that is, is still a time for anybody that can get up. Hayd or no hayd, nifas or no nifas, postpartum bleeding, prepartum bleeding, whatever you want to call it. You can get up and make dua and dhikr because it's a very special time. Laylat, uh, the layla of Yom Arafah. Of course, they're not going to fast, right? If a person is slaughtering this year or they're paying for the slaughter, either the same thing, it is a light sunnah. Light sunnah. For them also, I should I mean we should we said this from the beginning of the hijjah to not clip their nails or their hairs, right? And some people's nails grow really long and they get agitated by it. It's a light sunnah. If it bothers you so much and you clip your nails, you just lost the light sunnah. Why? Because shath, sloppiness of like the pilgrim, is what you're seeking. Okay, and so the uh, if you're unable to do it, khalas. But if you are able to do it then you are fulfilling a light sunnah there. All right, let's go to Aslam. What did Aslam's question say? Aslam says, can you pray ishraq in congregation? No, There's no, you don't pray duha in congregation. Okay. There's no salat ishraq. When you pray ishraq, which is used to be, you pray fajr, you stay in the same spot and you do dhikr and ibadah and Quran until the sun is up. Okay? Clearly up in the sky. You pray two rakas. That's duha. At that time, it's also ishraq. Okay? What's our live stream schedule? We are off Monday. We're off Monday. 
and we're back Tuesday. We're off Monday. And then the rest of July is full, Monday through Thursday, Monday through Thursday. August is spotty. There are two weeks I'm not in in August. So August is going to be our summer month. It will be, there will be some times where, but we'll put up the schedule. Aslam says, or Maham question first, how do we reconcile that it's better to do charity locally? Yes, it is better. But in the case of dire need, like these people who are dying over there, then, inshallah, uh, uh, it, it's, a, it's still acceptable. It's just better to do it locally, but there's people dying and they never eat, they haven't eaten meat in like six months. What are you going to do with... You know what? This is so funny. I used to see Christmas happening. All the neighbors would have Christmas when I was young. We didn't have a lot of Muslims around. We weren't even a religious family, right? But I, we didn't celebrate Christmas. We had some things that we did, like traditional things, right? We didn't celebrate Christmas, of course. So I said, well, what do we have as a little kid? Maybe like a 10, 11 years old. So my mom said, we have Eid. I said, okay, well, what do we do on Eid? They have trees, they have lights, they got gifts. And my mom said, well, we have Eid. I said, okay, well, what do we do on Eid? I said, we eat, we eat fatta, which is an Egyptian, it's, it's, the, it's the original, what the, what the prophet's grandfather had invented. His prophet's great-grandfather, Hashem, had invented a meal that became a tradition which is the lamb on bread with, with garlic and vinegar soaked into the bread. And then you put the lamb on top of that. And you eat that. So my mom said, Fetta. I says, oh, what is that? I said, it's lamb. So it's like, we get to eat lamb on Eid? That's the thing? But we just ate steak yesterday, right? <laughs> we eat meat all the time, right? <laughs> we eat meat all the time. How is this a special thing? Right? So, um, of course, there are many ways for parents that make Eid exciting. So, all my Nikes, I would get them on Eid. Like, I can't, I could still remember when I got my first Air Max, right? The, 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 the best running shoe out there, the first Nike Air Max, um, which is still like the killer. Those, they're still the best, uh, those are the best ones. They're the most comfortable, they're the best ones. And, and you know when these, these kids, they get their Jordans on Eid, and they're like walking like this. They don't even want to. I look around, I'm saying, Why, are, you, are you hurt? Are you okay? He's like, no, he doesn't want to crease his Jordans, right? So there is, we have so much meat that you have to start thinking of, what about those people in Kenya that haven't eaten meat in like 10 years, right? Why? Because you want to slaughter here and eat it yourself, you selfish. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, all right, next question says... Do they ship to Europe? Sophia says. I don't I, yeah, Yes, Mecca Books does ship to Europa. Okay. This book that we are reading is Survivor's Islamic Spirit. Thank you very much, Aisha L, for putting it up. A soul says, We have Sayyid, descendants of Rasulullah. Are there descendants of Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman, and Ali? Yes, there are. The descendants, there, and Sayyidina Ali has his own descendants through his sons outside of Sayyidina Fatima. Okay. And those descendants are, they're still there, right? They are still alive. And that lineage, those lineages are alive. And the Bani Abbas have a lineage. Okay. How do people attract those lineages? Like, how do they 
in the in the old days they used to monitor it. The prophetic lineage had to be government authorized. So no lie because you can't take zakah, they can't take other money. But once the Ottoman Empire was shut down, all that stuff was like just done. I don't know if it was done in the same precision. So a lot of it's mixed up and lost and a lot of people make up stuff. Okay. Shockwave, can we go over slaughter rules for my qurbani? You're going to take the animal. You're going to sharpen the knife before that. You don't sharpen the knife in front of the animal. You isolate the animal from the other animals. You should not slaughter in front of the other animals. Okay, It's just sinful if you do. But the slaughter is going to be valid, but it's sinful. You then dig a little hole because you have the blood has to go somewhere. You don't want the blood just going everywhere. You lay the animal down. Some people will close the eye of the animal. Sometimes not. You, you're going to basically pull the head back, the chin. And that helps because the animal doesn't see anything. You, you pull the chin back. And usually some people have to hold you, help you hold it down. And then psh, you slaughter it. Now, you'll be surprised. And in the beginning, you're going to be so nervous. You're going to go so hard. You might go all the way through the neck. You'll be surprised. But some people also, they go too soft. They're like afraid. That's haram. Because now you're like massaging the poor guy's neck. with You're teasing him. End it quickly. Because if you're going to risk, the risk of cutting the whole head off or going too deep with the knife is a lesser harm than like slowly killing the, the, the thing. Okay? All the animal rights activists would be going crazy. Okay, So shut them up. And do it like that, so stronger. And then after two, three, four slaughters, you get really good at it. Okay? You get really good at it. Question here says, is this correct that Sayyids marry Sayyids only? No. But some, some rulings in Shafi'i Madhab says that a man can preserve the lineage of his daughter who's a Sayyid, by only accepting another Sayyid. It is permitted in the Shafi school to do that. Is Sayyidina al-Khidr still alive? We'll cover that subject another time, inshallah. Because there are statements about that, that he doesn't live like a normal person. That he is unique in that. All right. Is the lineage lost if the mother Sayyid and the dad is not? A mother passes lineage for one generation only. A mother passes the lineage for what's the proof? Sayyidina Maryam. She was attributed to Prophet Ibrahim. That, or Sayyidina Isa was attributed to Prophet Ibrahim. How? Through Sayyidina Maryam. So one, a woman will pass the lineage for one generation. Next question here. Abu Bakr. Assalamu alaikum wa alaikum salam. Is the right, is the night of Arafah preferred over the other nights of Dhul Hijjah? No doubt about it. But also, the night of Eid is preferred over the night of, the, of Arafah. Laylatul Eid. So, is, is more important. What to recite for Tawbah besides Sayyid al-Istighfar? La ilaha illa anta subhanaka kuntum Is it true that we shouldn't fast? We answered that. Is it a bad bit? Bushra Begum. She says, what do you say to a 26-year-old woman? She's living with her mom, her mum, British. You know what turns out this Nathan Fax is really good because it's nighttime for the British Muslims. 
it's like an evening program for them. And it's also, they're more than us. Like the American Muslims are what, like, I don't know, like six million? They're like 12 already, a million. Someone said that it's better than Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, at least you don't get sins, at the very least. 26-year-old woman, she's living with her mom. She goes out once a week and stays the night. She doesn't tell her mom where she's going and says she's out with a friend. Where's the wali here? Where's the dad? Where's the uncle? Where's the grandpa? Or the husband? But she lives with her mom. Her mom does ask her, but she doesn't listen. Is the mom correct in being worried or is she not responsible for her anymore? The mom, in the sense, she's a sense responsible, but at the same time, there is a limit on what Allah expects from a mom or a mom. It's really certain things is expected to be done by a male relative. That's why the we have to revive in our sense, in our communities, this concept of the male relatives being res- taking care of their families. So there's so many families where there's no dad and there's no husband, right? So then in that case... It, the burden is unnaturally on another woman to do things that Allah himself does not ask her to do. Like lay down the law. Yes, every woman is a, she's responsible for her flock. But to what degree? A woman is, you can't put this burden on her to raise a teen son or control a daughter who's 26 years old. No, I don't see it. So whatever the mom does, it's a na'mah, it's a hasanat for her. But the obligation, I would say, you can't. She can't be held responsible. Okay, she can't be held responsible. Ultimately, in the sight of Allah, she did do what she can do. That's it. Do what she can do. Let's go to from the woods. Do you know any good resources for learning more about Allah's names? Yes. I've summarized them in the book Key to Paradise. I took them from Imam al-Ghazali's book and Imam al-Bayhaqi's book. Okay. And Ibn al-Qayyim al-Jawziyah's book. Some of it from there. Because he has a great book on that too. Alright. Key to Paradise is at safinapress.com You want the full book? Imam al-Ghazali's book, you can get it on meccabooks.com. Imam al-Ghazali's book on the 99 names. Jinan Yusuf has good lecture. I don't know what she's, it sounds like an Egyptian to me. Or Palestinian. Aslam, did we get your question? Omar Adizman, can we do what we're dua we want on Arafah. You should do it all day. All day. All day. You should do dua on Yom Arafah and a recitation of Quran. Hamza, is salawat considered dhikrullah? This is the second time I received this question today. Okay. After Fajr, I'm setting my alarm for the morning. Right? I'm a little bit sleepy. I'm going to sleep a little bit. Setting my alarm and I get this question. I never look at my phone after Fajr because the light will wake me up, right? 
Like even this, like this light, forget it. This is a disaster. This light even is pretty strong. So I never even look at it. But today I'm setting my alarm and I got this question, I have to answer it. All right. The question is, I feel guilty because I do so much salah on the Prophet and I feel that I'm not doing dua, I'm not doing dhikr of Allah. I feel guilty. Should I feel guilty? I told him, brother, this thought is 1,000% from Iblis or just confusion from your nafs. Why is that? All of dhikrullah, of the dhikr of the Rasul is in fact dhikrullah how very simply you would not remember him if allah had not ordered us to right number one you would not be doing salah on the prophet if allah had not told us to do so number one number two very literally you must say the name of allah in your salah the first thing you say allahumma salli so you have to say it you so you are remembering allah's name number number three the Prophet himself, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, said, if all of your extra ibadah and your extra dhikr was salah upon me, then all of your anxiety and your grief, your grief from the past, anxiety from the future, would be gone. There's nobody who does salah on the Prophet like, like seriously. They take it seriously. They're taught about it and they make it a big deal in their life. None of them, you don't see them except that they're extremely happy, easygoing people, light, very light people. Anxieties and grief gone. Number four, did not Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Man rasul Allah. Whoever has obeyed the Prophet, the Messenger has obeyed Allah. So that's obedience, which is higher than mere remembrance. So the obedience of the Prophet is the obedience of Allah. So the, therefore, the dhikr of the Prophet is the dhikr of Allah. And those are the four reasons why. So get this idea out of your mind. Iblis would love nothing other then you take your eye off the Prophet ﷺ. If your eye is on the Prophet ﷺ, you are going towards Allah Ta'ala because He's taking you there. Allah gives a tafsir of Surah Al-Fatiha in the Qur'an by saying, you are the guide to Surah Al-Mustaqim. If Allah wants to guide us to the straight path and He's guided you to following His Sunnah, to loving the Prophet ﷺ, to make the dhikr of Him, and you can't make dhikr of Him without loving Him, there's no way you could do dhikr of the Prophet ﷺ without eventually uh, wanting to follow his sunnah. And you can't follow his sunnah without following the sharia in general. Like nobody can say, oh, uh, the Prophet used him swak, I want to use him swak. But I'm, gonna, no, I'm not going to lower my gaze on the haram. No, that, that doesn't make any sense, right? So you're going to follow everything that he brought and it will lead you to nothing other than the straight path. Turning your eye away from the Prophet ﷺ is what Iblis would love for you to do. Because now, you can go do things your own way. Right? So that's the answer to that question. We can only take a few more questions because I got to, unfortunately, we have to wrap up. I, would, I, I, I told you before I can go for hours. Right? What's the alternative for women who cannot pray to Hajjud? She gets up and does dhikr and dua. Ruh Muhassar, I'm pretty sure that he, Jonathan Brown, when we, we did a podcast, not pretty sure, 100% sure, he, he retracted his statement, his philosophy. Uh, that's for Ruh Muhassar. He, or not philosophy, but opinion. He retracted it. 
I'm like on hundred percent. I'm hundred percent sure he did. Okay. Are women allowed to go to a burial? No, it is between haram and makruh. They could they could go after the burial has been finished. Is it permissible for women to go to a qurbani? Yes, and they could do a qurbani too. Have you ever slaughtered an animal? Yes, alhamdulillah, I'm going to do it again this year. Uh, the funeral, the janazah prayer is different from the burial. The janazah prayer, women of course can go to that. But the burial, the Prophet ﷺ forbade them from going. Okay, He did not want them to see the burial itself. Because that's like pretty graphic. right? After the burial is done, then they could go and visit the grave. What is advised to do on Laylatul Eid? Ibadah and dhikr and dua. General, ibadah, dhikr and dua. Can salawat, after, salawat on the Prophet after salah replace the tahleel, tahmeed, and takbir? No. Do not replace your own ibadah and no, nawafil. Don't, don't swap out the sunnah. So after salah, you have to do ayatul kursi as the Prophet. Not have to, I'm saying as a sunnah mu'akkadah. Not mu'akkadah, even sunnah. Ayatul kursi. Astaghfirullah, astaghfirullah, astaghfirullah. Allahumma a'ina ala dhikrika wa shukrika wa shnibadzik. Ayatul kursi and then your tasbih. 33, 33, 33. La ilaha illallah wa ta'ala shalika ala Muhammad Sain Qurqani Is Shams al-Ma'arif a good book? No, it's an evil book on how to use the jinn So let's throw it away And throw away all those Shia books too Prince Matthew Gaming Do you think Laylatul Qadr corresponds with Yom Arafah? It corresponds in the sense that the Laylatul Qadr is the greatest night Yom Arafah is the greatest day That's the correspondence between the two why are so many people saying democracy is haram just because it is from the West? Democracy is not, it's, what is forbidden is the spreading of responsibility to the point that we can't isolate one person who's responsible. So that the Sultan, if he does something, he can't say, oh well, he can't come on Yom al I didn't want to wage war, but the people voted to wage war. I didn't want to kill so-and-so, but the people voted. I didn't want to put the illegal taxation, but the people voted for that. You're not allowed to do that. Even your council, right? Like there's a shura. So responsibility has to be on one person. Okay. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will ask every sultan, every king, every emir, every president, this happened under your authority. You were king when this tax was levied on the people. You have no excuse. Oh, no, my, my senate, the senate said we have to do it. What kind of king are you? Okay. Same thing. That's what's forbidden. Of course, the law itself. Rapid fire. Been sick. Please make dua. May Allah ta'ala give you a speedy shifa. Ya Hamza Hussein. FF. What is recited besides um, for Sayyidina Istighfar? La ilaha illa anta subhanak inni kuntu min al-dhalimeen. I'll say it again. La ilaha illa anta subhanak inni kuntu min al-dhalimeen. What is Ishraq? Ishraq is Salat al-Duha prayed by staying up from Fajr until the sun rises. Is there a live stream next week? Yes, but not Monday. We're off Monday for Eid. Because originally we thought Eid was going to be Saturday. But it turned, uh, Sunday it turned out to be Saturday. But people made plans. Okay. And we answered a lot of these questions. In Hanafi Madhab, do you need to pray again if, let's say, you pray in the car plane while traveling? I don't know, to be honest with you. We have to ask about that. 
Can you go over to Mim al Ansari? Yes, inshallah. Maham answered the question uh, about the Hanafi method that you have to repeat those prayers. Ammar al Basri. Can I change to Hanafi Madhab because I take bayah with a shaykh that's following Hanafi Madhab? There's nothing wrong with changing your Madhab. Nothing wrong with changing your Madhab. Okay. If your mom is a Sharif from the Fredic lineage, are you? Yes. Spiritual love is a tie between people because they worship Allah together and they have taqwa towards one another. Like you have taqwa towards your employer. Like you respect them. I'm not going to rebel against them. I'm not going to cause problems. They have taqwa towards you. I'm going to make sure I pay him on time, etc., etc. Okay. All right, folks. We really have to, unfortunately, we have to go. Okay. Please um, Remember us in your du'a. Everyone have a beautiful Eid and take advantage of tonight. May Allah Ta'ala give us success to take advantage of the ibadah on this blessed night in which Allah Ta'ala has offered us that Laylat al-Arafah is on Laylat al-Jum'ah. And may Allah Ta'ala give us tawfiq in the siyam for those who are capable of making siyam and to get up for tahajjud tonight. That's what our goal should be on. And may Allah accept our ibadah, accept everybody's du'a, accept our siyam, accept the du'a to break the siyam. And then give us nashat to do ibadah again on Laylatul Eid. And may Allah accept everybody's slaughter. We will see you again on Tuesday. May Allah Ta'ala bestow rahmah upon us, consistency. And let us live and die upon the sunnah and jama'ah and ibadah and dua and humility and dhikr and love of the Prophet wasallam on hatred of bid'ah and his people, on hatred of sins and the people who, sp- who spread it publicly. And we ask Allah Ta'ala to accept us from his Siddiqeen and from his Shuhada and from his Salihin and resurrect us amongst them. And likewise for our spouses, parents, and our children and our offspring until Yawm Al-Qiyamah and those who marry into our families. Wa sallallahu wa barak ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam subhan rabbika rabbil izzati amma yasifun wa salamun ala al-mursaleen. والحمد لله رب العالمين